Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Bones, welcome back to 10% True. It's good to see you again. Oh, it's great to see you too, Steve. Here. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I, I will just say to the audience at home, you should be able to figure it out, but this is uh, obviously not the start of uh, a series of Bones. This is actually the third episode. So if you are tuning in now, you haven't watched the first two, go back and watch the first two so that you can catch up with Bones' experience as a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. Um, for everybody else who has watched Weapon 1 and 2, Bones, unless you wanted to talk about your uniform, what we're going to go straight into is your departure from Coningsby as an F3 exchange pilot flying the tornado or tornado, uh, exchange pilot flying the F3 tornado. Um, I will hand it over to you. Yeah, so thank you very much. Uh, first of all, um, different mug this morning. So this is my uh, 45 squadron. That was the last uh, F-18 squadron I was on. Um, they, they came up with these beautiful uh, steel mugs and then they had them engraved but the steel is so hard that they couldn't really get the engraving in, so you, you can barely see it. Uh. <laughs> so you have to take my word for it. It is a 45 squadron mug. I like to have different mugs. <laughs> the uniform, uh, I'll just move back a bit because you probably can't see it. But this is um, this is my staff officer uniform, and that's how we're going to sort of start out the discussion uh, today, is how I transitioned from being an exchange pilot on the Tornado and then going into a staff tour. And... You know, staff jobs are, uh, I think, for all pilots, but especially for fighter pilots, they're they're particularly dreaded and egregious. But um, I knew that I didn't have any choice. You know, I'd done three long fighter tours. There was no way I was going to go back to another uh, flying job. So I steeled myself for the the upcoming uh, trauma, and it, it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So um, you know, there were some interesting parts to it too. So. I was in um, Coningsby. I'm coming up to the end of my tour. Um, we have an individual called the career manager. So he's the he's the person that slots pilots into different positions. And he just happened to be a good friend of mine. So I called him up from England and I said, uh, hey, Louie, I said, uh, Bones here. I said, um, which, which uh, F-18 gun squadron are you going to send me to? And he starts <laughs> laughing. And he says, Bones, he says, your future involves a bay. He says, because you're a friend of mine, I'll give you the choice. Because normally they just put you in wherever you're needed, right? So he goes, you can either go to Goose Bay or to North Bay. So Goose Bay is um, a very small Canadian detachment there. It's basically a, uh, a NATO flying training base for low flying for the Brits, Germans, Dutch, and the Italians. But they keep a, a Canadian um, staff there as well. And it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And I ended up there 
you know, after I left the military, I, I went there for a year. Beautiful place, by the way. But um, the other thing was North Bay. So when I'd driven out to Cold Lake, uh, this was about eight years previously, uh, we were driving around North Bay, which is about probably 500 kilometers north of Toronto. And uh, it was a horrible day. It was snowing. Uh, we were driving around the Ring Road, which is all industrial sites. And my brand new wife at the time, she says, oh, what a horrible place. And I figured I was going to end up there because that's where our fighter group headquarters was. So I go, no, no, it's it's actually beautiful in the summertime, you know, and, and down by the lake, it's gorgeous. And she goes, no, I'm never coming here. And I'm going, oh, no, this is going to be tough. <laughs> so fast forward uh, eight years, and now I've got the choice between Goose Bay and North Bay. And I, I came home to her and I told her what the options were. And she was looking daggers at me because, you know, there's no way she was going to go to Goose Bay. And now she had to backtrack on uh, on North Bay. So anyway, we uh, we ended up in uh, in North Bay. I was uh, still a captain, so uh, two stripes, you know, like a flight lieutenant at the time. And um, uh, I had a great job there. It was uh, very much in the, the meat of the fighter operation. So, you know, tactics, uh, weapons, um, changes to the aircraft and all that kind of stuff. It was very, very sort of a tactical headquarters job. Um, Backtracking to my time in, in Coningsby, um, we were deployed to Gioia del Colle in, in Italy for the um, Bosnia conflict. And my boss, who also happened to be my navigator, so this is the flight commander, not the squadron commander, but the flight commander, he was all I, he was also paired up with me as my navigator. And a great guy, Welsh, uh, Welsh guy, beautiful, soft, dulcet accent. You know, you could never get them excited even when they're shooting at us. And um, so he gets this package from the Defence Liaison Staff in London that says, uh, yeah, could you uh, could you write up this uh, performance evaluation report for Captain Ledgham? So he comes to me and he goes, Bones, he says, what the heck is this? You know, it was like 40 pages. I said, oh, yeah, I said, it's a nightmare filling those things out. You know, I said, if you want, I'll, I'll fill it out and then you can just sign a lot. Right. And he goes, oh, OK, sure. So, of course, I ticked off all the, you know, the far right boxes and I, I was, you know, <laughs> I was basically uh, the best fighter pilot and best uh, officer material ever. And he actually signed it and sent it in. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So we are, our fighter force, well, our whole air force had been downsized, you know, the peace dividend after the Berlin Wall falling and all that kind of stuff. And that was the time where they closed the base in Germany. So we actually had a surplus of uh, fighter pilots and they were actually um, sending experienced majors, you know, so senior officers to go fly the Sea King. That was the only flying job they could find these guys. Really? Like it was, it was absolutely atrocious. And that's the only time I've ever seen, you know, before, after um, a shortage of, of pilots. So I knew I was in, in big trouble, but I, I had a good staff job. You know, as they go. And I also got, uh, what's called a designated flying position. So I was able to fly, um, you know, as as much as I could organize the schedule, because I'd have to I'd have to go out to one of the fighter bases to fly. So I, you know, out to a Cold Lake or to Bagotville to fly. But I got checked out on the F eighteen again, and I, I was able to do that probably about one week every um, every two months, maybe. So not a lot, but enough to keep my hand in. And it was a good excuse to get out of headquarters. But of course, all the emails piled up where you're gone. So it just meant more work. But, you know, it was it kept my sanity. That's for sure. And so anyway, getting back to the um, the performance evaluation report, uh, I was 
at Fighter Group for a year, and then I get a notice that I'm being promoted. And the job that I was in, um, it was for a captain, so it wasn't a major, so they had to find me another job. So I went to another job there, and it was called the uh, Staff Officer Joint. So this is joint operations with the Army and the Navy. Uh, but it wasn't a designated flying position, so I lost my flying position. Hmm. And to pop it off, um, when you're in a designated flying position, you actually get flying pay. And if you're not in a designated position, you don't get it. And my boss there, he was a real stickler for rules. So as soon as he got the promotion notice, he sent off a message to our headquarters and said, okay, cancel his uh, flying pay. And if he hadn't said that, nobody would have known. I would have kept on getting it. And that was a big chunk of money. So I ended up actually making maybe $50 a month more as a major than I did as a captain just because of the loss of flying pay. Really? Yeah. So it was a double whammy. You know, I lost my flying and I lost the pay as well. (laughs) So we have a different, um, we have a different hat as a major, uh, you get the um, scrambled eggs on the, on the, on the brim of the hat. So I went to supply and I, I bought a new hat and I think it was about $40 or something. And um, I came back and I told all the guys in the shop, you know, that I got my hat and they said, Oh no, we don't wear those anymore. You don't need that. (laughs) So even on parade, they didn't wear them. So that's like, Oh man, I just spent my last $40. (laughs) Anyway. So, um, it was actually quite an interesting job as the joint uh, guy. I got to deal with the um, Army and the Navy. And we had liaison officers, you know, who were fighter pilots that worked with the Army and the Navy as well. So I got to go out and visit them um, and also work, you know, with their headquarters staff. So it was it was good. And that really was a great lead in uh, for my follow on job after I'd left the military. So when I was working with top aces, they did a lot of work with the Army and the Navy. So it was very good to, you know, not not just the down in the weeds stuff that we did with them, but also how headquarters and their um, and their organizational structure worked. So so it worked out well for me. Then, so I was going to be there for three years at uh, Fighter Group, and after two years, my um, next level up boss. So he was a full colonel. And he was announced as the next wing commander uh, for Bagotville, which is the Eastern Fighter Base. So I saw him in the hallway one day and I said, uh, hey, uh, I said, do you need any uh, experienced major fighter pilots on your wing? You know, and it, I just threw it out as a joke because, you know, we were actually surplus of uh, fighter pilots at the time. And he knew me. I think he was a he was a student of mine when I was the uh, an instructor on the F-18. So we had a great relationship. And he goes, ah, he says, let me look into it. And the next day I get a posting message to uh, to one of the attack fighter squadrons at Bagotville. And that's where my my wife was from. So it was perfect for me. You know. So that was just great. You know, I got out of there a year early and posted to 425 squadron in, uh, in Bagotville. We go out there in the summer and... Um, uh, I check into the squadron and I, I've been assigned as the uh, operations officers for the squadron. So it's a big, it's a big position. And, and in USAF squadrons, that's the same rank as the squadron commander. So they're both, both uh, lieutenant colonels. When I showed up there, uh, I was actually shocked. The, the squadron was so unbelievably disorganized. It looked like a flying club. And I thought, you know, like this is a frontline F-18 squadron and these guys are just lounging around. And it was, it was really shocking. So that was a lot of work. And I had to get back into the 
the tactical side of the F-18 as well. You know, it wasn't just um, being a supervisor on the squadron, but I had to I had to get back into it because it's been many years since I hadn't really flown the the jet. So one of the first things that came up, we got a message from the headquarters and it said, okay, you are now the rapid reactor squadron. So we have squadrons on different levels of readiness, depending on what they're going to do. All squadrons had the NORAD air defense role, uh, but we also did the uh, air to surface role and the, and the deployment role. So we could primarily go over to Europe, but, you know, where, wherever it took us, including the Gulf and that sort of thing. So the first thing I did was um, I contacted the headquarters and I and I said, okay, what's you know what's the plan here? And they said, well, we we've, we've got to come up with a um, a plan, you know. So we need a we need a war plan basically to say how this is going to to come into effect. What kind of support you need? What kind of transport you need? How many people you need? All that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you mean you don't have that? And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, the last one we had was from ten years ago, and and it's totally out of date. He said, would you mind coming out to our headquarters in Winnipeg and help us write it? And I'm going, holy cats, like, that's what headquarters is for, is to write the plans, you know. But they had no idea. They had no idea what was going to be involved. So I flew out there with our maintenance officer in the back seat, And we started writing up this plan of how we're going to deploy to could be anywhere in the world. And they started going, well, we can't afford that, you know, and, and we don't have those resources. And I said, well, why did you declare to NATO that, you know, we were going to uh, have a rapid reactor squadron if you can't support it? Because, well, you know, we'll, we'll kind of fudge it. So we came up with this uh, war plan, which looked great on paper. And then it was about six or eight months later, I get another message saying, okay, you're going to get a NATO tacky valve. And... That, that's a big deal. I don't know if you're aware of, you know, what's involved, but it's, it's uh, you know, you have to do this right because it reflects on your whole country. Hmm. So the good news was it was going to be, it was going to be conducted in Andoya in Norway. And I'd been there many times in the F5. So I knew that I knew the base and I knew the area. So I thought, okay, well, that's good. You know, I know what I'm dealing with at least. I'm not going to someplace I'd never been before. So I contact the same guys at headquarters and I said, uh, okay, I said, we're going to need a budget, you know, to do this because it's going to be expensive. And they go, well, no, that's got to come out of your squadron budget. And I said, well, we can't do that because we put in our, our budget request a year ago and we didn't know that we were going to deploy to Europe. They said, well, we don't have any money. <laughs> wow. I said, well, how are we going to do this? You know, like it was just, it was, it was unbelievable. These, these people had no ideas in the headquarters. So we eventually beat them into submission and they came up with some money, but there was no support for us. You know, we didn't, we should have had an airfield defense regiment. You know, we should have had proper military police. We should have had, you know, all of the support things you need to deploy a squadron. And I'd seen it from the RAF and the RAF does a very good job, um, you know, when they, when they do these deployments, especially for attacking them. So I knew how it should be done. Well, we, we scrabbled together and, and we did a workup and the, the Tacky Bell team from NATO, they sent um, some representatives over to Bagotville, and we did some of the preliminary work. So we had to do um, threat recognition, uh, some written exams, uh, and then they they looked at all our paperwork and stuff so that they wouldn't have to do all this stuff in theater. So it made sense that they would come and do this preliminary examination. 
And the other good thing was that the head of the Tacubell team was a Tornado F3 navigator who I knew. So I thought, oh, great, I'm in, you know. <laughs> so the, a couple of the guys decided to, this was in the winter, and a couple of the guys decided to take him out snowmobiling uh, on the weekend. And doesn't he crash into a tree and really, he really busted himself up. You know, he right. broke his hip and punctured a lung and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, oh, no, there it goes. <laughs> So they found another uh, another lead for the Tacubell team, and we deployed over to Norway. And uh, I was on the advance party, so I got to go over on the C-130, lovely. And the first um, the first transport truck came in with the Airbus 310. That was what we used for the uh, strategic transport at the time. And it was full of duty-free booze. <laughs> there, were, there was nothing virtually nothing operational, no spare parts for the F-18s or anything. And the Tacubell team is, is standing there watching and they're looking at me, you know, because I'm the OPI for this. And they're going, are you here for a party or are you here for a Tacubell? And I, you know, I started dancing and I go, well, you know, they must have mixed up the load that probably was supposed to go somewhere else and all this kind of stuff. So I call back and I say, what the hell's going on? And the I'm talking to the loadmaster back in back building. He goes, well, this is, uh, we didn't know what the priority was. So the ground crew came and they said, hey, make sure you get all this booze on because it's, you know, it was about a quarter of the price of what we're paying in Canada. So I said, okay, well, make sure you get the ops box and some spares and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, um, NBCW gear, you know, so it makes it look like we're actually ready to fight. Oh, well, sorry, sir. You know, the load's already made up and we can't break it down. And I said, no, 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 you got to do this, you know, and sure enough, the next load shows up and it's all duty for booze as well. So I'm going, oh, no, we've already failed. <laughs> but anyway, we we scrambled, the jets came over, we started flying, but we we got into the, uh, the tacky bell, which is very intense, you know, it's 24 hour ops. And um, uh, one of our jets was coming back at night and it was uh, snowing and there was a big crosswind on the runway and they they don't tend to clear the runways very well in norway they they uh, put grit down on them sand so they can get some kind of friction but it was still pretty slippery so they and it just so happened it was our one two-seater uh, aircraft and he had one of the nato tacky ballers in his back seat so they land on this runway and the snow is drifting across and he ends up going off the side of the runway, probably at 120 knots. Wow. So he calls eject, and then he goes, no, 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 don't. And because normally the call is eject, eject, eject. And the guy in the back seat should go on the first call, and the guy in the front seat will go on the third call, just in case the, the separation doesn't work. It's it's automatic separation, but just in case. So he called the first eject, then he goes, no, 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 stop. And as they went off the side of the runway, the snow was was quite soft, and he said it was like driving into a big marshmallow. So they just came to a very quick uh, stop. Uh, but the guy in the backseat, who was actually a Hornet uh, pilot from Australia for some bizarre reason, uh, he had actually pulled the handle, but not far enough to initiate the ejection oh. sequence. So he's sitting on this hot seat, not knowing if it's going to go or not. He's trying to get the handle back in, which is difficult to do you know, when it's partway out. <laughs> wow. It was just crazy. Uh, but they um I think they had to replace the landing gear. And other than that, they got the airplane back flying in two days, which was incredible. You know, like incredible, incredible work. So I think that might have saved us in the tacky ballad. <laughs> just, just just tell us bones about the seat thing then. How did they end up safing that seat so he can get out? 
Well, you can push it back in. You can. But you know, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he'd only uh, pulled it part way out, so not enough to initiate the sequence. Wow. Yeah. Was his, just returning to, I think, part one, was his um, was that runway departure based on the landing technique that you talked about, um, you know, sort of planting it and then sort of bouncing a little, or was that unrelated to this particular mishap? It, it's hard to say. Um, the, it could have been a variety of things. The big thing is visual illusions. So when there's drifting snow coming across the runway because of the crosswind, it's very, very hard to gauge what your track is down the runway. So I think it was I think that was probably what caused it. Okay. And and maybe some maybe some landing technique as well, because the, the pilot who was flying it had only flown uh, F-18s in Bagotville. So in Bagotville, because it's in a valley, you never get crosswinds there. It's always, you know, it's always down the runway. And after that second crash that I was talking about, um, I said, okay, well, this is ridiculous. You know, the guys need to know how to land in crosswinds because you're not always going to be flying to Bagotville. So there was actually a short runway, a short cross runway in, in Bagotville. And we would always do, you know, a couple of touch and goes or even a cable harassment on that short runway just to make sure guys were comfortable with the crosswind technique. Yeah. It, was, it, it was stupid that we didn't do that in the past because we'd lost you know, several airplanes because of that poor crossword landing technique. Mm. Can, can I ask, and I know you're in the middle yeah. of telling the Takaval story and I don't want to, um, I don't want to derail you from that, but just, just quickly, because I'm curious, mm-hmm. um, this sort of lack of, um, I don't know what you'd even call it, attentiveness, awareness, um, appropriateness at headquarters, the fact that the squadron is a bit like a flying club. What is it that's, hap- that's happened within the Royal Canadian Air Force, in particular the fighter aviation part of it, that has that has contributed to that becoming a thing? That's a great question. And, and because I'd been out of country for three years, it really came as a shock to me because when I left, you know, I left the training squadron and we did not only – the training of the the new pilots, but we also did the fighter weapons instructor course. So we conducted that training, which was very, very high level uh, training. So it, it really was a shock when I got back to see how the, the fighter squadrons were operating and, and the lack of support from the headquarters too. And it was like, come on guys, this is, you know, we're, we're here to fight. We're not here as a blind club. And uh, yeah, it was it was terrible. Like it really was awful. You know, I told you the story about the blue flying suits. You know, we show up in in theater with blue flying suits and say, "Come on, guys!" You know. So that was uh, that was a real shocker. And I'll get into a little bit more of that. Uh, you know, as I talk about the uh, the art of war. You know, for the fighter pilots. Okay. So we anyway we we managed to bluff our way through the um, the tacky bell. They gave us a you know a bear pass type of thing, but uh, that's fairly common for weak uh, countries and and weak air forces. It's very rare that they would fail you unless you did something really egregious. So we got the pass mark and um, went back to Canada. So now we're blessed as the rapid reactor squadron. We deploy out to uh, Cold Lake for a maple flag exercise, which is like red flag, uh, but the Canadian version. And we're one week into that, and the boss gets a message and says, okay, stop the exercise, uh, get back to Bagotville as soon as you can, bring the jets and the, and the pilots, and you're going to deploy over to Italy. So this was the workup for Kosovo. 
one of the F-18 squadrons from Cold Lake had been there, I think about four or five years previously for the Bosnia conflict, but they didn't actually um, drop any bombs or anything. So once again, I'm the OPI for the deployment. And I fly over to Aviano and this time the support was a lot better. So we had a team from the National Defense Headquarters that were there and uh, we didn't need any airfield defense or any of that kind of stuff, you know, that the Americans and the Italians provided all that. So it was purely to support the the Canadian F-18s that were there. And they actually did a pretty good job. It was much, much better than the NATO Tachybell, which is where they should have put the effort, you know, because we came very close to failing the Tachybell, which would have been a national embarrassment mm-hmm. if we had have done that. So at least I knew that the, the support was there. Uh, we got everything spun up. The jets came over. And we started doing the flying. Now, I skipped ahead a bit here. So when we were in um, in Maple Flag in Cold Lake, uh, we did a week of that. And those flying exercises are excellent, excellent training. And it's not just the flying. It's all of the planning and the coordination that you do with the other groups. The big difference is on the flying exercises, uh, 90% of it you do face-to-face so you can coordinate with the other packages that are flying at the same time you can talk to the support assets you know the AWACS and the air retrievers are there as well so that's a huge advantage to be able to talk to these guys instead of and we didn't when we when we went into combat in Kosovo we didn't even really talk to people on the phone it was all done by message traffic you know so they just said hey you need to be at this place in this time we would coordinate and most of the time with the mission commander um, and it, for us, it was the Strike Eagles out of uh, Lake and Heaves. They were the uh, the mission commanders for the packages that we were doing. The, the first uh, package that I led out of Aviano, uh, or the, the fortune of Canadian Hornets that I led, the package commander was a, um, a whistle, a backseater from the F-15Es, great guy, and um, and we started doing the mission planning and we had, you know, we we, had, we all had our targets and our time over target. And then you work backwards along the route that they gave you and then you get a push point. So, so this is the time that you leave and now you're committed to going in. So we had all that. Uh, we figured out our, our timing to get from the push point to the target. And the the USAF guys were doing all the planning on that their, their mission computer. So it was a laptop and they were doing all the planning on it. And something went wrong. And they were unable to figure out their push time. So the night is getting late. And we're flying the next night. We weren't flying that night, but we were flying the next night. But we got to get back and get some sleep and, and do all our preparations too. So I was probably there for an hour and a half and I'm talking to him. And I'm trying not to pressure him too much because he's he was quite stressed out about this. that They're not able to get this mission planning computer working. So, so I came up with a ruler that we used to use in the F5 days. And it just had... The timing marks at you know 420 knots 480 knots and, and whatever so i said hey just just put this on the map and you'll be able to figure out your time he goes holy cats i've never seen anything like that <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a you know it was a ruler that our intel guys had made up you know with just marks on it that that um delineated the time 
So I said, well, show me your map and I'll do it for you. You know, so he shows me the map and they were doing 500 knots true for some bizarre reason. So, you know, it didn't really equate, but I said, well, we'll, we'll use 480 and we'll just fudge it by a couple of seconds. So I said, okay, well, you just push it this time and, you know, we'll, we'll push uh, 10 minutes after you type of thing. So he goes, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So we went out and we, um, we, uh, we went in the first night and um, the weather was great. Uh, it was clear in a million, uh, dark. I don't think there was any moon. We didn't have night vision goggles back then. We had the FLIR, so we could we could see features on the ground. And our target was a missile storage and repair facility in, in Serbia. It wasn't in Kosovo, it was up in Serbia. And it was on the edge of an airfield, a military airfield. And they were still publishing their uh, ATIS, but we knew what the surface winds were. We knew what the altimeter was and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, there was no OPSEC. Wow. <laughs> so we knew what the surface winds were. And that's very important for your uh, your bombing strategy, because as soon as the first guy dropped, we, we were coming in, in trail. So each airplane was a mile and a half, two, two miles behind the preceding aircraft. But if you drop your bombs and the wind is blowing back into you, then the second aircraft won't be able to see the target because mm. it'll be obscured by the smoke. So we knew the direction of the wind. We planned our attack accordingly. Uh, I was the lead aircraft, so I slewed my FLIR to the inertial nav system. So now it's pointing at the area, and you can either zoom in or zoom out with the FLIR. So I looked down and it was, like I said, it was clear in a million. And what do I see is a great big cloud sitting right over my target. And I thought, how the heck could that be? You know, like there's no clouds anywhere. And there's one cloud sitting over my target. So I thought, well, I, there's nothing I can do about it because you have to see the target. You can't drop the bombs, you know, on, on coordinates. As I got closer, I realized that it was um, a cloud that was sitting over the airfield and our target was on the far end of the airfield. So I, after I got sort of, uh, a line of sight beyond the cloud that I could see our target and I dropped the bombs. Well, I found out later that it was the F-15s that had gone in on the airfield and we didn't know this, but this was, this was the smoke coming off their explosions. Yeah. So that's another lesson learned about, um, you know, attack planning is you have to send the guys into the far end of the target area first, not to the close end, because as it turns out, my number four, uh, was not able to see the target at all. So he he carried his bombs back home with him. And I didn't realize that. He didn't tell me that he'd missed the target. So we're flying back out. And there was, um, I didn't see any surface-to-air missiles. We didn't get lit up by any SAM radars. But there was a lot of AAA fire. And they would fire, I think, probably one round out of every five or ten was a tracer. So you could see this stuff coming up at you. Um, it wasn't particularly threatening but the my number four he started maneuvering to try and get away from the surface air missile uh, or the surface air the triple um, a fire and he started running low on airspeed because he was stuck at his altitude and he still had all his bombs on board so he was still heavy uh, he lit the afterburner to recover his airspeed and he started screaming on the radio and I turned around and he was he was 10 miles behind me and I could see his afterburners 10 miles away. And we were about five miles above the ground. So when he lit his afterburners, 
everyone and his brother started shooting at this, uh, you know, this light source because they were just shooting visually. Well, first of all, they would shoot on noise because they didn't want to turn on the radar. So they would hear the airplanes coming. And we, you know, just like in Vietnam, we would fly the same route, same time every night. Where we, you know, they would light up the AAA. But once he lit up his afterburners, uh, they were really, really shooting at him. So I had to yell at him on the radio to get his attention. I said, get out afterburner, you know, and he, and he pulled it out afterburner. And then, the, you know, the, the uh, ground fire uh, faded off after that because they couldn't see him. Was, was he, was so we he, flew back home and he was he was pretty shaken up. Was was he a young guy? I mean, what, what, how do, yeah, how he was really young. That, that must be one of the rules of you know that's fighter pilot one hundred and one, isn't it? You know, don't don't light your burners. Well, no, because we want to be seen. Well, and and here is another thing: we we'd never really done any night attack, you know. So all of the maple flag and red flag it was always done during the day, and it's a different environment at night. You know, you are flying with your lights out. And you don't realize that. So when you start pulling G on the airplane and it gets slow very quickly, the natural reaction is to throw the afterburners in to recover your speed. And, you know, we were at we were at a hard altitude. We had a block, probably 20 to 25,000 to deconflict with the other friendlies there. But I said to him afterwards, I said, hey, you know, there's a, there's a couple of lessons learned here, guys. First of all, when you start maneuvering, hit the jettison button and get rid of the tanks and the and the weapons. The next thing is, if you start running low on airspeed, use the big sky theory. You know, there's probably nobody else out there. So just take it down. You know, don't go below 15,000 feet, but you still got eight or 9,000 feet you can use to get your airspeed up. They were so, and this was the system, you know, the system had ingrained into people that you have to maintain your altitude. And when you get slow, you have to hit the afterburner. But they'd never put all these things together in a wartime scenario. So it was, you know, he came very close that night. And for, you know, for really dumb reasons. And it wasn't his fault. It was the system that didn't support him, you know, to get to that point. I mean, we were woefully unprepared for all of this, not just technically, but in terms of practice. And we'd, we'd never done night attack profiles. You know, we had to do a certain amount of night flying, but we would go up and do intercepts at night, you know, because it was a lot easier. Why? Why is that then? I mean, because you mentioned maple flag well, being similar to red flag. The idea behind yeah. red flag is you make your you fly your first ten combat missions. You make all those kind of rookie mistakes, and you do that in the safety mm-hmm. of you know the 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 training yeah. ranges before you go into combat for real. Um, I'm really surprised that you you weren't doing ground attack at night, especially as you have was it AT flare that you were using, or I don't know the target pod. No, we had the uh, the Nighthawk. The Nighthawk. Yeah. Okay, so you've got a good but target we didn't- pod. Yeah, and that was the other problem. So the other, the squadron that had gone over there, I don't know, five or six years previously, they had the, they were the initial ones to get the Nighthawk pod, but we'd only bought a very small amount, maybe eight pods in total. And then when they came back, they wanted to husband them in a, you know, the central uh, location. So even though we did our workup as the NATO rapid reactor squadron, we never got to use the Nighthawk pods until they said, yeah, you're going over there. And then we had a, a one week workup with these things wow. to try and figure them out. But it was really to figure out how to guide the uh, laser guided bombs. Cause that was how you designated the target was with the clear. So we didn't do any four ship mass attack scenarios or any of that kind of stuff. It was just the technical part of how to run this target. You were learning on the oh, job. Yeah, it was terrible. And, and you know, we, we also got Maverick missiles, the imaging uh, infrared missiles, and they're tricky to use. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things you can screw up on those things. 
And we got those a week before we left as well. So we're trying to figure out the Learpod. We're trying to figure out the laser guided bombs and we're trying to figure out the, the Mavericks. And it's, you know, you can see guys' heads exploding. It was just, a, it was just, a, it was too much to, to expect from these guys. And I, I got another great story about that a bit later on when the second squadron came to replace us. But, um, so that was, that was the first night that we went in and then we would we would do every other night so in the intervening nights we would do the mission planning for the following night and the next trip we did so the 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 first time you go into these kind of scenarios you're so busy and you're so focused that your mind doesn't really wander you know you're you're just got the blinders on i've got a job to do it's very very difficult you don't think about fear. You don't think about anything else. The next night, which is two nights later, another beautiful night, uh, clear in a million. And we had to fly from northern Italy all the way down the uh, Adriatic, uh, up through Macedonia and back up into Serbia. We, for some political reason, we weren't allowed to cut over Bosnia, which seemed crazy. We'd been flying there the whole time, but now we're not allowed to fly over Bosnia. So we had to do this huge route. It was about an hour and a half to get into Serbia. It would have been, you know, 25 minutes if we had to go direct. So we had to refuel on the way down there. As I'm coming up across Macedonia, um, you could see all the cultural lighting on the ground. You could see all the cars driving around. And then I could see the border with Serbia. And it went from modern day Europe. And I... This this sounds a bit ethereal, but it was like crossing into hell. It was completely black. The only lights were were the fires that were burning from combat, and you could see the tracer fire coming up. Really? And that really hit me. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm actually stepping into hell right now. Yeah. So that's when things, you know, I started to think, this is not pleasant. You know, it's exhilarating to be in combat, but it is not pleasant. Uh, a couple of weeks later. So we had been there for, I think we went in June of 98, and now we're into March of 99. So what's that, almost nine months maybe. So they said, okay, well, we've got to rotate uh, your squadron out. And, and our squadron had been augmented by the other squadron at Baggettville. But they said, okay, well, you guys need to rotate out. We'll, we'll bring the uh, Cold Lake squadron in. And the squadron commander was a good friend of mine. And you've probably heard of him, a guy named Billy Flynn. Yeah. Uh, so he's... Yeah, he, he's uh, quite a famous um, test pilot, uh, display pilot. He was the head guy on the F-35. Well, he was the squadron commander of the Cold Lake squadron when they came in to replace us. What they did was they did their initial in-briefing and, and uh, all that sort of thing. And then we would take two of their pilots with us. So there'd be two Bagotville pilots and two Cold Lake pilots until their leads got up to speed. <clears throat> so that was the, the number one and the number three. They were the two leads in the squadron. And then they could they could start taking their own formation out. And so we did that for a couple of iterations. Uh, some great guys on the Cold Lake squadron, some some old friends of mine. Um, and then I took a couple of the wingmen up flying, not not up flying, but in you know on one of the missions into Kosovo. And this was their first uh, bombing mission, so they'd never been in combat. Um, they were fairly inexperienced, and I, and I knew them. Um, 
and they were they were both uh, good guys like you know sharp operators and and well focused and stuff but i i knew that this was going to be very very difficult for them and the hardest part was going to be the, the refueling because we had to refuel before we went in to hit the target so i thought okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna brief all of the tactics you know how we're gonna get in how we're gonna get out uh, the, the specifics of the attack um going through all the switchology and all that kind of thing and then i'm going to talk about the air refueling at the end so it'll be fresh in their mind because that's the first thing that they're going to have to do and i said okay if you guys have you guys refueled off the kc-135 because the kc-135 for us is the most difficult uh, tanker and they they attach a hose at the end of the boom but it's a very short hose and you have to you have to hit the basket and then you have to push the hose up so that it makes a 90 degree bend and that opens the refueling valve and it's uh, very very uh, tricky to do that so i said okay have you guys refueled from the kc-135 before and they're both like no so i'm going oh this is going to be tough okay so i said well you got to listen to me because it's not intuitive you know you have to do this by rope there's symbology in the hud and you have to line up a certain part of the of the um anchor on the heading bug of the HUD and just use your peripheral vision to look at the basket. Cause if you try and look at the basket, you'll, you'll end up chasing it and you'll never get in. So I said, I knew that neither of them had done the KC-135. I said, are you guys, you know, fairly current on night refueling? You know, have you done it in the last month? So the first guy says, well, I did it about two months ago. And the other guy's kind of looking at his boots. And I said, well, how about you Skippy? And he goes, I've never done night refueling before. <laughs> so he's doing his first combat mission. He's doing it on an airplane that's the most difficult to refuel off. And he's doing it in. Right. <laughs> so I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking, there ain't hope in hell. You know, this is just not going to work. So we get up to the tanker and, and the two leads, myself and the other guy from Bagotville, we took our fuel first because I knew it was going to take a while for these guys to get their fuel. And the first guy, uh, it took him a long time. You know, he was he was what we call jousting with the basket. So what happens is, as your as your probe is coming up towards the basket, the bow wave off the nose of the airplane actually pushes the basket outboard. So you tend to chase it, but at a certain point, the basket won't go any further. You know, so then it starts coming back. So you end up doing this, and that's called jousting with the basket. So he did that for quite a while, but he finally got in. It's like bravo you know you got in that is incredible just that in itself was a huge victory and then the second guy uh, he was doing the same thing but he'd never done the. he was the guy that had never done the night refueling so he was really struggling and at a certain point i said i i hate to tell you this but we got to go you know we have a time on target and we're burning fuel we're waiting for you to take fuel too so we had to we had to send him back home with his bombs and it was totally not his fault he was just you know they had not prepared him for this uh, for this job so that was another another big failing in the system. Um, another interesting story, and this was a two-ship for some reason. I was with the Dutch uh, exchange officer, who was a great guy. And we're flying up. Our target was a radar site in Kosovo this time, in, in northwest Kosovo. So we're flying up over uh, Kosovo, and it was completely undercast. So I don't know what the ceiling was. Um, you know, it was fairly low cloud, but it was a solid undercast. You couldn't see anything on the ground. 
and you have to see the target in order to drop the bomb. So I'm thinking, okay, well, we're just, you know, we'll, we'll go for a tour and we'll look around and see what we can see, but we're not going to get our bombs off. So as I'm flying up, uh, the capital is called Pristina. As we're flying up, uh, we are a little bit, probably about 20 miles east of Pristina. And I look down and I see this long string of bombs over Pristina. So that was, it was a heavy bomber, either a B-1 or a B-52. And they didn't tell us what those guys did. That, that was the sort of secret American package, you know, those, those guys. So it's like, okay, well, I know what that is. You know, that, that's a heavy bomber because they laid a string of bombs, probably 50 or 60 bombs. And it was, I think it was on the airfield in Pristina, the, uh, they bombed the uh, target. And they, the heading crossing angle was about 135. So we're, we're going northwest and they're probably going a little bit, um, uh, straight east type of thing. So not, not 90 degrees, but they were heading a little bit away from us just from the track of the bombs. So I keep motoring on up uh, north. And then something catches my eye and I look down and the, the F-15, so the, um, I think they had the Pratt & Whitney engines on the F-15 back then, but it had very distinctive afterburner. And I looked down and I, and I see these four afterburners and I thought, what the hell are the F-15 guys doing flying in close formation at night in afterburner? Well, then I realized it was the B-1. So this B-1 was in full afterburner, and he was quite a bit below us. I think we were at 23,000, so he was probably down at 17 or 18,000 feet in full afterburner. And he was going the speed of heat. Like, we were doing 0.9 Mach, and he was passing us like we were standing still. So what the hell? Well, then the, the common frequency starts getting very busy on the radio. We run the AWACS frequency, and you could hear this guy screaming, and he's going, we're spike six, you know, we're running for our lives type of thing. And it's like, holy cats. Well, sure enough, the Serbs shot a SAM at him. Oh. But fortunately, it was rear. It was in the rear aspect. It wasn't a forward aspect SAM. And the SAM just couldn't catch him. Yeah. It, uh, it ran out of it ran oh. out of juice. But it was quite spectacular to have this God's eye view of what was going on and all the yelling on the radio and stuff. Anyway, the, the SAM ends up fizzling out and uh, and crashes back to earth and, and there were no other shots. So I called them up on the radio and I said, hey, listen, your six is clear. You know, you can you can come out of burner. And he wasn't listening. <laughs> I think they went supersonic all the way back to the UK. <laughs> Probably broke a few windows on the way back. Too. Years later, I'm reading in the USAF magazine about this crew and they had taken off from Lakenheath and they knew that their ECM gear was broken on the ground. So they had the, you know, they had the the warnings saying that your ECM gear. So they talked to the command post and, and the command post said, well, it's your choice. You know, if you want to go, uh, you can go. And this crew decided to go. And sure enough, what happens? They get lit up by a radar SAM. You know? So they were very lucky. If it had been a forward order shot, you know, coming up at them, they would have been dead. Yeah. The only reason that they survived was the speed that they were going. And it was a rear aspect shot. Wow. It, was it was it a man pad or yeah. a radar sand? You said it was a radar sand. It was a radar. Yeah, they were spiked. Yeah, I don't know which sam it was, uh, but yeah, they they were calling spike six, and that's the direction that the that the sam came up at them. So, wow. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But bones, can I can I take yes. you back and ask you some questions yes, about sorry. those the, the couple of the stories? So, so the first thing was, I wondered if you could just give us. Um, a timeline for your targeting process and and how you did it in the Hornet. So you talked about you know queuing the pod to an INS um, lat long in, yep. in the INS. Were you using the radar? What were you dropping? 
um, you know, what what was the actual process for you targeting in? It's, it's an A model Hornet, right? With the APG yeah, seventy, yeah. is it sixty? 68 or no 60 no 60 something 65 or something like that 67 maybe so what was your what was your targeting process in the hornet like and what were you dropping so we at the time we were dropping uh 500 pound laser guided bombs uh we subsequently found out that they weren't actually doing anything so we got the 2000 pounders but when i was dropping them they were all 500 pounders the as we flew in, we would try and update the INS because we had a single INS and it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. And we were, you know, because we had to do the air refueling, it was a long time before we got to the target. So the, the technical specs were one mile, uh, one nautical mile per hour of drift. And if it, if it drifted one nautical mile, there's a good chance you weren't going to see the target. So we would do an INS update on the way in, which proved to be more detrimental than than favorable for us. And I'll tell you it's, uh, about that in a minute. So we would find a feature on the ground uh, that we could pick out with the ground mapping radar and we could update the INS based off the ground mapping radar. And then that would hopefully get the INS back to where it should be for the target. As we're approaching the target, um, we if the target was not readily obvious, so if it was, you know, if there were not big features that would really lead you to the target we would do an offset so we would pick a a point and then you would have a, a distance uh, and heading from that point to the target and that way you could slew the FLIR onto the target as closely as possible and then start narrowing down your your FLIR vision so the first night it was a bridge um i think that was probably four or five miles away from the target. And then you add the offset to that, and then that slews the FLIR over to the target area. And then once you get the, the FLIR on the target area, uh, you could narrow down the, you know, zoom in on the target and pick out your, um, what's called a DMPI, which is the designated mean point of impact. So this is where you want the bomb to go. And it'll go through a window, you know, if everything works properly. It's a very, very accurate system. So you would find the um, you would find the offset aim point uh, with the FLIR. You would add the offset data, zoom in on the target, pick the specific area of the target that you want to hit. You would do all that with the cursor on the throttle, so that the cursor would uh, steer a little cross symbol to the actual point, and then the computer in the airplane, the, the weapons computer, would figure out the launch envelope for the bomb so then you would follow the steering cues for the bomb and um, it was a line that went up the hud and as the release cue came down you just had to press it was really a consent button and as the release cue came through the release point then the bomb would drop off and on its own and the, the bombs were fairly it was fairly tricky like you really had to get them off on the right point because if you dropped it too early they would guide on the laser but they would run out of energy and hit short. And if you dropped it too far, they may not be able to curve over enough to, to pick up the reflected laser energy and, and pick up the bomb. So you you had to, you know, you even though it was a laser-guided bomb that flew and was guided, you had to be fairly disciplined about the drop point. And then I don't know if you're aware of it, but the 
the laser guided bombs, they don't follow the laser from the aircraft. So the laser shoots at your aim point and then the laser energy splashes back up from reflections and the bomb follows the reflected laser energy. It doesn't follow your laser. Yeah. And the, the, the lasers are very powerful. So even at 25,000 feet, we had to wear a laser visor because of the reflected energy coming back. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And especially if there's, you know, if there's glass or shiny, you know, shiny steel or something like that, that's a very good reflector. Uh, it can actually damage your eyes. You also mentioned IR Maverick and uh, the complexities or the difficulties in, in, uh, in using that. Well, uh, you know, based on videos I've seen, it, it has a pretty short range. Um, what were you in, What were you intending to do with with IR Maverick? I think for us, it was it was probably going to be, you know, if there was a, a hardened target that the five hundred pounder wouldn't take out, or maybe even a tank, um, you know, that we absolutely had to hit. But we we flew with them in training, but we never loaded them up for wartime. You know, that would be that would be the, the loadout that was decided by the headquarters. Yeah. So we never actually flew with them in combat. And it was a good thing too. I mean, it was, you know, the, if, if you flew with them a lot, it was fine. It's like anything, right? It, it's a matter of getting the switches in the right positions and, and, you know, getting the warhead looking at the right, or the seeker looking at the right point and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think we flew once, one training sortie with them and it was like, wow, I hope I don't have to use this more. So it was uh, much trickier than using the laser guided bombs, yeah. and they were they were very expensive too. I, I can't remember what they cost. It was like six hundred thousand dollars a piece. The laser guided bomb is probably you know forty fifty thousand dollars. Wow! So it was you know it was a stupid weapon. Yeah. Can Can you tell us a bit more as well about how you felt about the ATO? So I, we've had on I've had on the channel you know Star Baby Petruca who was a you know in the mission planning cell. Um, I can't remember where it was. It wasn't. Uh, I don't know where it was. It wasn't down. It wasn't Aviano. It was somewhere else. And he talked a little yeah. bit about some of the frustration. So there, there was a US only ATO, but I think even within yes. that world, there was then a, you know a B two and an F one seventeen ATO, and they and yeah. he he recalled being told you're not allowed to see this ATO, and he's like, well, you know what? What are you talking about? We're all on the same team. Why can't I see it? And anyway, yeah. he expressed some frustration about the um, ridiculous nature of of that compartmentalization. So you're sort of then in effect sort of two steps removed from. The the center of that targeting process, the ATO process. How did you feel about that? Do you, do you feel any frustration not not knowing what the B fifty two, the B ones, the B twos, the F one seventeens were doing? Was it okay for you that you you actually didn't have a need to know? What was your feeling around it and your sort of logical explanation for it? Yeah, and it, and and I brought up two points. The first one was um, that I didn't know what the F fifteen E's were. Uh, dropping on the same airfield that I was attacking. So that would have been nice to know. And if it had been a maple flag, we would have known, you know, so we would have had a big map with all the targets and say, okay, these guys are coming from here. These guys are coming in from here. This is the timing. We'd be able to see all the decomplexion and stuff, but we just didn't know that they were going to be there. So that came as a big surprise. And then the next one I talked about the B1, I had no idea that they were out there, but it was obvious when I saw the bomb trail, well, that's who it was. But that didn't really affect us other than the surprise factor. Knowing what they were doing, not really a big deal. Um, you know, we we trusted that they would deconflict us. So that's the worst thing is if you end up in the same piece of sky at the same time, you know, the, the um, 
when the big sky theory fails, then you can get a, a collision. That would not be good. Hmm. So in, in the big picture, no, it didn't it didn't really bother me. Um, but that's a great segue into another issue. Um, so I was there for the first, I, I was only there for about two weeks of the Kosovo conflict because we'd been there so long. And then they, they rotated us out. Uh, by the end of the two weeks, you could tell that they were running out of military-specific targets. So we started attacking other things. And that's when you get into the sort of mission creep. Um, you know, is this really um, what we're supposed to be doing? So we'd hit all of the barracks. We'd hit the missile storage facilities. We'd hit the airfields. Um, and they would, you know, they would show us the battle damage assessment. So we knew whether it had been neutralized or not. <clears throat> and then we started, after two weeks, we started running short on targets. And our attachment commander, he was also the, the base commander or the wing commander from Bagotville. So he was our uh, base commander, but he was running the Canadian detachment from Vicenza, which is where the uh, tactical headquarters was for, for the year, um, for the conflict. And he was a great guy, actually, a guy named Dwight Davies. Uh, Snow Davies, he did an F-16 exchange tour uh, with the USAF down in Mount Luke, I think it was. Um, he he and I had flown F-5s together uh, back in the early days, and then he'd gone off and done his thing, and I'd gone off and done my thing, but we'd, we'd come back together at, at Bagotville. So he was the wing commander. Now he is the, the boss in Vicenza at the headquarters. And he... <laughs> He'd been out hiking the weekend before the war started. He'd been up in the mountains and didn't he break his ankle? And he's about, I don't know, kilometers away from his car. And his car is a standard stick shift car. And it was his left ankle that he broke. Oh, so no. he's trying to figure out how he's going to get the clutch in and out and everything else. And of course, he's in huge pain, right? So he, he got that fixed up. And when the, when the bombing started, he would drive from Vicenza to Aviano, which I think was probably about two hours. And he would come out and see the jets off when they left. And he would wait around until they came back. And it was usually three or four hours later because they were long missions. So he would do this every night. And then he would go back to Vicenza as soon as that was done and, and do his um, his job as the detachment commander in Vicenza because he was pretty busy doing that too. That lasted for about a week, and then he said, oh, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> but it was, you know, like that was a huge thing for us to see, you know, that he would make that kind of effort with a broken ankle, too. You know, he's on crutches, and, and he would come out and see his boys, you know, and, and mm. he would be there when we came back. It's like, wow, that's uh, that's leadership, you know. So the other thing that he did was when we started this mission creep uh, with the targets that weren't particularly militarily significant, he would put his foot down. He would say, "No, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to attack that because the the headquarters, uh, you know, the NATO would assign targets to different squadrons, and he would say, no, we're, 'No, we're not going to do that.' So one of them, I think, was a a civilian TV station, and they said it's spreading propaganda, so we need to bomb it. And he goes, 'No, we're not going to do it.' So that that took a lot of guts, you know, to, for a colonel to stand up to some general at NATO and say, "That's not us." And as it turns out, I mean, I think the the Canadians were there. So this, the campaign started in March, I believe, and I think the Canadians were there until June. Um, so there were still several months, and they ended up, you know, bombing all kinds of bridges and roads and that kind of stuff, too. So I'm glad that I missed that, you know, because 
in retrospect, I look back on it and there is that whole conflict is very complex politically. Because I'd flown over Bosnia and I'd seen the devastation of the villages in Bosnia, I, I went in there with a clear conscience, you know, so I thought the same thing's going to happen in Kosovo. They're going to basically do ethnic cleansing, get rid of the, you know, the, um, uh, the Muslim uh, uh, people in Kosovo, uh, bring the Serbs back in, but it was far more complex than that. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have time to dig into the politics of it at the time, but at least I knew that the targets that I attacked were military significant targets. So I'm sorry, I didn't finish off the story about the B1. So we're flying, we're flying northwest uh, through Kosovo. The B1 passes us like we're standing still going supersonic all the way back to Lakenheath and we're flying up towards the target and I'm just on a joyride at this point because it's solid undercast there isn't a single break in the clouds and my wingman the Dutch guy he he calls up and he goes hey Bones our our target is sticking up through the clouds and I went what <laughs> so I slewed my flare over and sure enough you could see it it's like holy cats I got to do my my job now you know I'm just kind of looking around going hey who else is going to get shot at today <laughs> so it's like okay back to work back to work you know so sure enough it was a radar site that was sitting on top of a hill which is where they put radar sites so the clouds were so low that the they were actually beneath the top of the um, of this hill and we could see the the target so we dropped our bombs on this uh, radar site. And came back home and the next morning i had to go to the the wing uh, debrief so this is all the fighter squadrons in aviano they would send one rep each and we would talk about what happened the previous night so the colonel gets up and he goes yeah he says the weather was really tough he said but uh, you know we got the canadian rep here and they were the only people actually hit their target last night so he had the actual hud film or the the flare video from my attack <laughs> that's very cool. so we were stars for about 10 seconds yeah but he didn't. He didn't talk about the B ones though, I, and I didn't say anything about it. You know, the B ones had hit their target, but that they they would just drop drop them on radar. You know, they didn't have to see the target to drop. So. What was yeah, the, so it was a weird, weird situation. That, so, so the constraint for you then not being able to drop on coordinates was that the quality of your coordinates was not good enough. Is that it? Rather than you had some ROE around, uh, you know, something. Yeah. Else. So. Um. The, the coordinates were were generally quite good so we would we would back up the the coordinates were probably derived from uh, satellite from satellite pictures and then we would back that up by plotting the target on a map mm. and then double checking the the coordinates between the satellite and the map so we were fairly confident that the coordinates were good but we didn't have the jdam so we didn't have gps guided bombs it was purely um uh, laser guided and you had to see the target to laser the target yeah yeah and the, i don't think the laser would really penetrate through cloud i think you had to have uh, line of sight is, is, is it a silly question to ask whether or not you then had a say presumably you didn't have a, back, a backup plan but is, is it feasible that you would employ an lgb in an unguided mode though so let's say you had a high priority target you can't see it yeah. would you would you have considered dropping it as a dumb bomb yeah so it, it's um the, the the parameters were built into the mission computer to the weapons computer just like a dumb bomb was so it would you know it would be as accurate as a dumb bomb now normally when you're dropping a dumb bomb you're doing that visually so you're using what's called ccip the continuously computed impact point um, so you'd be able to see the target and that was fairly accurate you know you get it within 100 feet 
Um, if you're in an overcast situation and you can't laze it, then you would have to use the coordinates and, you know, it could be off by a thousand feet easily. Mm. So. Are you using the radar at all for any kind of mapping? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. How, yeah so how good was would, it? The, the F-18 radar was good. The ground mapping radar was good. If you had if you had terrain, especially lakes, the lakes would really stand out. Terrain was tough because, you know, there's shadows and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, lakes and rivers, uh, highways, uh, railways to some extent, they would they would stand out. So we would use the radar to get into the local area. And then you would switch to the FLIR because it didn't have as long a view. Um, and then you would tighten things up with the FLIR. And that was your final targeting method. What, what did you know about the – so you're taking out radar sites. Uh, you're hitting airfields. What, what did you know about the Serb defenses then in terms of their competencies, in terms of um, how good their equipment was? Um, I mean, there's there's just this law now that I think, you know, L-O-R-E that surrounds yes. the Serbs because they shot down an F-117. And, and I, yeah. as I understand it, they were pretty inventive in the way they did that. So, so yeah. They, they, they yeah, it's were, a great story. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've read the whole story. You can find it on the internet. But it's, uh, it's fascinating how they did it. Did, did you know that they – We didn't know. Sort of ingenuity? Did you know that they were up to that kind of stuff? No, no, and it was a real shock when the 117 got shot down because we thought, you know, we thought those things were invincible or, or invisible, actually, the radar. Um, as that's a great segue. So one of the issues we had, um, the SA6 uses a continuous wave illuminator, and continuous wave is exceedingly hard to jam. So the the pulsed radars, you can you can jam them by introducing um, a sort of a decoy into the electronic and pull it off, but continuous because it's just a continuous beam. It's very, very hard to jam it. Now, we actually had a jammer on our Hornets, and the, I don't think the U.S. Navy even had them, and it was a, a continuous wave jammer specifically for the Central European uh, theater, and I think it was the ALQ-162. So it was it was optimized for CW jammers, and then we had the 126B, which is what the Navy had, and that was for the pulsed radars. I found out subsequently, or maybe it was about halfway through, that the 162, the continuous wave jammer, was optimized for low-level operations because that's what we thought we were going to do in Central Europe. So the the beam was out like this. It wasn't like this. It was like this. Mm -hmm. So you could get into a situation where it would be initially jamming the radar or maybe not if they hadn't shot at you. But you got to a certain point at high altitude where they could shoot and get underneath the jamming beam and come up underneath you. So that was another bit of a shocker. You know, and of course the, the boffins at headquarters knew this, but they didn't bother telling us or they, they were instructed not to tell us. I don't know. Really? Yeah. So how did you find out? Well, it, it, you know, after a while, maybe we were just kind of talking around the bar about the 162. And I'd i done a project on the 162 um, when I was going through the fighter weapons course. So I, you know, I, I was fairly up to speed on it. But it just never crossed my mind that, you know, this the, the jamming beam goes out like that, not like this. So, you know, then it goes, hey, yeah, at, at high altitude, you're very vulnerable for this thing. The other, while we're talking about equipment, the other a uh, big lacking we had is we didn't have the jam-proof radios. We didn't have the, um, I think they're half-quick 
radios. We didn't have those in the in the Hornet at the time. So we were on a open frequency, and the rest of our attack package had to be on the open frequency because you had to be able to speak to everybody. So that dragged down the other people in the package because we were probably one of maybe the Spanish didn't have it either, but you know everybody else, the Europeans and the Americans, they all had the half quick radio, and you would sync up the the radios usually. Um, on the ground, if you were all on the same base or through the AWACS, you would get a, a Mickey that would synchronize the frequency hopping for it. So that was a big, a big, big thing for us, you know, among, along with several other things. The the Maverick ClearPod was not great either. The picture we got out of it was horrible. One night I was showing the F-16 guys my, uh, uh, my FLIR tape, you know, of the target. And he goes, yeah, he says, ours looks great, but they take the video in the F-16 directly from the FLIR pod. It doesn't come through the, the screen in the cockpit. We had an over-the-shoulder uh, camera that took a picture of the screen. And he goes, he says, yeah, he says, our, our FLIR pod is not much better than yours, actually. It's, uh, it's tricky to use it. And he says, it looks great on the video because it's a direct feed from that. It's the targeting pod. I think they were using the lantern at the time. We subsequently got the uh, sniper pod on the Epic team, which is a lot better. Hmm. Yeah. And and you had no, um, I don't know if you if you said this to me when the, we were recording or not. You had no IFF, is that correct? Um, no mode four. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't have the interrogator, so we could we could squawk mode four and one two three, but we didn't have the interrogator to see where everybody else was. Yeah, so that's I think we spoke about that. That's the um, the four blades on the in front of the. Uh, yeah, windscreen there on the nose. So, so how are you going to you're you're attacking airfields? The Yugoslav Air Force has MiG twenty nines. You know they've got a capability, a real capability. How are you yeah. intending to be able to uh, um, interrogate? Uh, you know, defend yourself. Let's say not even on a sort of offensive counter air. Yeah, the IFF they wouldn't they wouldn't be squawking that anyway. So it was, and and we wouldn't squawk. Um, we would we would turn off our IFF as we're crossing the Marshall Point to go into hostile territory. So we wouldn't be squawking until we came back out again. Even mode four? No, no, because you're emitting, you know, so it's they, they can track your emissions. So for, you know, for combat, it wasn't, it wasn't useful. Um, but for marshalling and for egress, or if we got vectored back on a, aircraft that wasn't squawking as he's coming back out and then we would you know we would be able to to find him if he didn't turn his squawk back on and it was a friendly squawk so you'd say you know he's friendly give up yeah so that was a that was very uh, the iff was a very very small part of the threat matrix and even the um even the nectar you know the non-cooperative target recognition so we would we would be able to get an identification of the type of aircraft from the radar but you couldn't use that solely mm. to uh, declare them as hostile and shoot them. And I think you, you know, the F-15 guys were probably talking about that too. So that's really tough because you're getting spiked. You know, it says, "Hey, a MiG-29 spiking you," and the radar saying it's a MiG-29, but I don't have the hostile declaration from the AWACS, so technically I can't shoot them. You know, so the best thing is just not to even ask the AWACS. Just go, "Hey, I'm being threatened. Self-defense." <laughs> <laughs> it was the only way because it was ridiculous. You know. Yeah, and they they did it on purpose. I mean, we had we had a couple of blue on blue engagements in the uh, Gulf War. You know, we had uh, 
we had a couple of Canadian Hornets, and I might have told you the story, but a couple of Canadian Hornets that got vectored on somebody who was coming out of um, Iraq and he wasn't squawking, and the AWACS said, yeah, he's hostile, shoot him. And they got the nectar and saying it was an A6, so they come up and did the intercept on him and turned on the ID light. Sure enough, it was a, a U.S. Navy A6. So these things happen, you know. Yeah. The God's eye view from AWACS is not always perfect. So how did you feel then about your performance overall? I, I, I get the feeling that this is kind of, um, it must have been a bit of an unsettling time to see the Royal Canadian Air Force maybe not at its most performant, maybe not, um, you know, sort of showering itself in glory and, and perhaps needing, you know, I mean, I don't mean any disrespect, but I'm just getting the feeling from you that, that, that it, you know, I mean, all, all air forces, all organizations, you know, go through change and sometimes they're at the top of the game, sometimes they're not. So it's not a, not a matter of shame, but I'm just curious to know how you felt about it. Were you in a position to influence? You know, you, it sounds like you've got a couple of mates who are in senior leadership positions at that time in the Air Force, you know, squadron commanders, wing commanders, that that kind of thing. Are they seeing the same thing as you and feeling the same thing as you? Are they able to influence? Yeah, and it was a bit like I was talking about with the RAF. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to influence the lower levels, but to get something change, which really needs to be changed, it's much, much more difficult. So up to about the, you know, the colonel, the wing commander level, they would, they would get it, you know, they would understand. But then to take it to headquarters and say, hey, we need this, this, and this, and they go, well, you know, the army wants tanks and the Navy wants ships, so we'll put it on the list. And say, no, if you want to send us into combat, we need that. And eventually they did, you know, the, the today's uh, CFA teams are, are, you know, very, very good electronically. Uh, they've got all the kit they need, but they're 40 year old airframes, you know, so it's no good having the best radar in the world if you can't get it up flying. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to get the F-35 until, I think, 2026. So it's going to be a few more years here. And they'll come in trips and traps. Yeah, I was going to say So the Hornets, the Hornets are going to be flying for many, many years, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, over the course of the last interview, three interviews, we've talked a little bit about um, mishaps, you know, aircraft going off runways. Um, you talked in the very first one about losing friends in, in aircraft accidents and, um, you know, hitting lakes and some of the visual deceptions that you have to deal with flying out over the snow. And you talked about the drifting snow across the runway. Just t tell us a little bit about your experiences with, well, your near-death experiences, you know, the things that have maybe frightened you or, or given you pause for thought in your career at Flying Fighters. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of uh, fighter pilots, um, ever since World War One, you know, when they really started using airplanes as uh, as combatants, uh, the vast majority of deaths have been from training accidents, not from actual combat. So we, our training was very aggressive. We initially did ultra low level flying and. You know, it only takes a second or two of inattention when you're you're in the you know in the trees or in the lake. Um, so we we trained very hard to be cognizant of that, but it doesn't take much. So that was probably the majority of our accidents. The other ones that came about were um, G loss of consciousness. So even though we flew with the G suit, that gave you about one extra G. And if you're not ready and you pull on the stick and you get up to seven G. Even with the G suit, you'll you can black yourself out very very quickly. Um, air to air collisions that happened a few times, and that was one of my near death experiences. But I'll talk about the first one. 
So I was flying an F-5 at the time. Um, we were going to go down to the Army range and uh, drop a bunch of practice bombs, shoot some rockets, and shoot the gun. But the weather was was too low, so we couldn't get down to the Army range. We couldn't drop our ordnance. So the lead that I was flying with, he said, okay, just go up into the air weapons range in Cold Lake, find a target um, you know, on your own, and just get rid of all your ordnance, because the armorers hated downloading ordnance when you came back you know it was real pain so it was they appreciate if we could get rid of everything before we came back so i found a target uh, on the range the weather was suitable to do it but it wasn't great so the, the ceiling was quite low but i had enough to to get a, a bit of a dive angle towards the target so i dropped my bombs and shot my rockets and that was all good and then i started strafing with the gun and the the f5 had two cannons they were revolvers so it had um uh, six um, revolving magazine with single barrels, you know, like an old pistol. So the rate of fire was probably a third of what the uh, current guns are, the Vulcan cannons. So it took a while to shoot all, out all the bullets. So I did one pass and I still had some bullets left. So I came around again for the second pass and I'm shooting and I'm shooting and it's still shooting and now I'm getting close to the target. But I think, well, they got to be gone here soon. And just as the last uh, round went out, I realized that the target was on top of a hill. I hadn't even realized that in the past. Wow. And now I'm way too close and way too low. So I buried the stick and I wouldn't have had time. If I hit the hill, I wouldn't have had time to pull the handle. No, it was that close. And then you go, oh, that was not good. And this is a typical visual illusion, you know, especially in, in low light conditions. You can't tell the terrain. So I, I hadn't realized that this target was actually on a hill. I thought it was a flat feature. I mean, that was it was probably a hundred foot hill, so it was way too low in the first place. But when you when you do press in on the target, these are the kind of things that can happen. And then the other one, um, we were on a DACT deck with the Hornets, and this was when I was on the training squadron, and we were fighting against uh, A4s from the U.S. Navy. And I think it was a 4v4. There was a fair number of airplanes in the air, but we, you know, they wanted to get into a visual engagement because they didn't have radar missiles. So the the idea was we were going to do this, you know, radar engagement, get into visual fights, and then mix it up. And they, the A4s that the Navy had were fantastic. Like they they would turn with the Hornet. Uh, they were they were stripped down. They had the big engine. Uh, they took out all the the gun and the avionics. So it was a little hot ride. <laughs> So I was actually, I, I just went up for a backseat ride with one of the other instructors. And he was, he was not particularly sharp, but, you know, he had lots of experience on the Hornet, that kind of stuff. So we're, we're going into the merge with the, um, with the A4s and we, and I pick out from the backseat a single A4 that's coming towards us. So I call it out to the guy in the front and I said, Hey, have you got the, the A4 at 1130? And he goes, yeah, 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 I got him. And all the while, when when a, a target doesn't move in the canopy, that means, you know, and it's coming from a different angle, that means you're on a collision course, right? So he wasn't moving in the, in the canopy, he was just getting bigger. So I was just about to yell out, you know, watch out. And the, and the A4 went full belly up to us in this huge evasive maneuver when he realized that we weren't going to miss him. And we, you know, we should miss the A4. We've got the radar and all that kind of stuff. He's just looking out the window. And that was another time where I wouldn't have had time to, you know, it happened so quickly that I wouldn't have had time to pull my handle. Yeah. Thankfully, the A4 pilot uh, made the mishap. And so we got down on the ground and I said, 
you know, you, you told me that you got him. And he goes, no, 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 I saw another airplane that was out there. It's like, well, how can you miss this, you know, this A4 that was now three miles away from us? But he was fixated on the other airplane, which he thought I was talking about. So little things like that, you know, little lack of communication and, and target fixation, once again, it can be it can be deadly in a heartbeat. Does it take a lot of self-discipline not to ruminate on those things, uh, not to replay them in your mind? And what what is the impact if you can't do that? Yeah, and that gets back to the self-defense mechanism. So especially when you do something that's your fault, you know, you don't want to talk about it, first of all. And then secondly, you say, well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> but there'll always be something else. Yeah. yeah. So we don't we don't ruminate on it. You know, guys think about it, but you know, you wouldn't be able to do your job if you if you got wrapped around those kind of details. So you go, yeah, I survived that one. And then, you know, that's I'm now down to seven lives out of nine. <laughs> Carry on, old chap. On, on a serious note, then around around the losses of friends, um, I, I, you know, I've asked this question a few times of different, of different guests, and and hopefully it's not too repetitive for the audience if I if I ask you the same sort of same sort of question. But you know, you sort of do you do you, do you adopt a sort of religious mentality towards the loss of friends? Do you do you think, well, you know, I'll see them again at the great big bar in the sky? Do you do you personally have a view that death is final and there's nothing afterwards and, and it just is what it is? How how do you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically deal with the fact that you're flying with somebody one day and the next day he's gone? Pretty deep question, Steve. It is. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. It is. It is a deep question, but you know, you, yeah, don't, have, I, you don't have to answer it. Um, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding you here. Um, I, I didn't really, you know, I, I was, I was brought up as an Anglican. I didn't go to church that much, you know. After my parents said that you don't have to go to church, so I didn't, uh, I didn't choose to go to church. Um, in the military, uh, once my, once my children were born, then we, we regularly went to catholic uh, mass and the the military chaplains were fantastic you know they were they were well-grounded individuals they knew that it wasn't just about preaching that they had to reach out to people um but these things i didn't really think too deeply about at the time because you're just so busy doing everything else so no we didn't we didn't ruminate about that we just said hey i dodged a bullet and uh, carry on because i got a full day tomorrow and then it's you know when when you when you get older and you have more time to think about it and you go there are some things that we did that was really really stupid and that's really what it came down to you know and and whether it's you know whether it's the pilot that did it or whether it was headquarters that said you've got to do it or whether it was us for saying no I'm not going to do it you know you're asking me to do something that's really dumb you know so I guess that's the that's the sort of trifecta of what was going through in minds at the time. Does that answer your question, or is that too ethereally an answer? No, it's that's you know. The, as I always say to my guests, the answer is the answer. So I'm grateful yeah. for you know. I'm grateful for the answer, even if it's a different answer to the the one that I was thinking I might get or whatever. So that is the answer. Yeah. So, so I was doing the fighter weapons instructor course in 1985, and I was doing that on the F5 before I went on the F18. Um, the first operational F18 squadron had been stood up in Cold Lake. And they were to be the NORAD Air Defense Squadron. And then due to politics, they decided to send that squadron over to Germany to be a ground attack squadron instead. 
So they had this whole plan that they were going to, you know, replace the air defense squadrons first and then replace the F-104s over in Germany to do the ground attack role. But the politicians got involved and they said, no, we're going to send this squadron to Germany. So these guys did a, a, a more focused ground attack workup for Germany and then they deployed the squadron over to Germany. So the first, I don't know why they did it. They, the first uh, launch out of Cold Lake was three aircraft and it was the squadron commander leading and then two good friends of mine were on his wing. So they were taking off in a, what we call a big formation, a three aircraft uh, formation takeoff. And I was down the other end of the runway, the, the ramp where we operated from, but I knew that they were leaving that day. So I heard the, I heard the Hornets and I thought, oh, that's probably my buddies, you know, so they come roaring down the runway. And the runway, I think, is 11,000 feet in Cold Lake. It's a very long runway. So they came roaring down the runway. And I'm going, holy cats, they're halfway down the runway and they're not airborne yet. But they were heavy. They had three wing fuel tanks and, and missiles sort of loaded up on board. And then finally, the two wingmen just pop up in the air like that. Like they didn't do a gradual rotation. They went like this. And the lead aircraft stayed on the runway. So I thought, okay, well, he's, you know, he's still got a couple of thousand feet before he hits the cable. And I could see that his hook came down. So that was going to grab the departure and cable. Well, he went zinging right over the cable and off into the, the overrun. And he was still doing over 200 knots when he went off into the overrun. Wow. So I'm thinking, holy cats, you know, well, now he's got to be jacked because, you know, the airplane's not going to survive this. But he went so far off the end of the runway, he went behind um, a set of trees. And then I saw the the uh, explosion and the smoke. So I thought, he hasn't even got out. You know, he's he's been trapped in the airplane and it's exploded. So I pull off my parachute. We had a parachute on our backs on the F-5. I pulled off my parachute and I started running out towards the, you know, towards this crash scene because there was nobody around. And um, eventually the fire trucks caught up with me and they said, hey, are you the pilot? You know, and I said, no, I don't think he got out. I didn't see a, a shoot or anything. So they, they blasted off ahead uh, to the crash scene. And then I came around the corner and he's, the pilot's standing there watching his airplane burn. So he did eventually eject. And he must have gone half a mile off the end of the runway before he ejected. Wow. But it was nice and flat, you know. So initially he thought, oh, I'll stay, I'll stay with it. And then, and then there was a, a rut that came up that uh, he said, no, I'm not going to make that one. And that's what, that's what uh, tore apart the airplane. What was the course then? Well, he'd, he'd, he'd either hadn't, no, he'd, he'd set the trim in the wrong direction. So instead of, we, we would take off with four degrees nose up trim and he'd set it either full down or four degrees nose down. And he had full aft stick and the airplane was actually a, a 200 knot wheelbarrow. There was so much um, downforce on the airplane that the mains had, had almost come off the runway. And that's why he didn't catch the cable because the hook, did not reach down far enough to grab the cable. Wow. It was it was going down the runway like this, and, and then the nose wheels actually left skid marks just from the pressure on them on the runway. Wow! Like why they didn't burst the nose tires, I have no idea. So he was very very lucky. I thought yeah. if you didn't have the trim set right in the Hornet, you get like a deedle deedle, and uh, the, the the FCS page shows a fault or something. If you if you advance the throttles with the trim set wrong, maybe now, maybe now. But uh, and then you know, in in typical fashion, they overreacted to it. So first of all, they said, "Okay, we're going to set instead of four degrees nose up, which is the standard for the Hornet, we're going to set twelve degrees nose up because you cannot get twelve degrees nose down. So if you screw up the arrows up and down, you just can't get to twelve. And then they painted lines 
on the side of the aircraft and the ground crew had to check that your stabs were set for oh, trim. Wow. Okay. But 12 degrees nose up trim was way too much. So if you're doing a formation takeoff, you know, and you're 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 rolling down the runway, and as a wingman, if you start lagging behind, but you're in full power, you know, you're gonna get behind him. And that's not good because then you can get into his jet wash and stuff. So typically you just call for power and, and the lead would pull his power back a, a tad and then you'd catch up. But it was kind of embarrassing, you know, as could be because you were late getting the throttles up or whatever. So then we found out that you just push the stick forward and you dump all of that drag from these great big sticks because they're huge. You know, the, the stabs on the Hornet are huge. Yeah. And then you catch up with them and then you go back to 12 degrees. <laughs> <and so. laughs> wow. So um, just so I don't forget, because we, we've got to get to the um, F-15 story. So Disco was talking about uh, how they called the Tomcats turkeys. And I think Disco probably knows it, but we used to call the F-15 the tennis court Mm. because it was so big. And to get a tracking guns kill, um, you have to have your pipper on the aircraft. So anywhere on the aircraft for one second. And that doesn't sound like much, but there's, you know, there's 6,000 rounds per minute coming out of the Vulcan cannon. So you're, you know, you're basically putting out a hundred rounds into that target. So when we would call it a tracking guns kill, it'd be like, uh, yeah, guns track on the tennis court because it was so easy to get the pepper off. You had this huge target that filled up your whole windscreen. <laughs> and you can see him for miles, you know, it's, and and he knew it, you know, as soon as he go plan for him in the, in the um, F-15, you could see him for probably 10 miles. So that's my F-15 story. Thank you. I, I, I did actually, I've just recorded another another episode with him because I'm I'm recording as many episodes as I can at the moment just to store them all up. But I, I recorded another episode with him and I asked him about the fake canopies written on the bottom, uh, or painted on the bottom of Hornets. And, that, and he was, you know, as usual, but then the thing that wasn't on the Eagle, he was dismissive of it. What was your, what's your take on those fake canopies? Do they create a, no, no, no use? it's a waste of time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it might fool you for a quarter second, but that's what it is. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I noticed that he, you know, he talked about fighting the uh, the teenage fighters, but he didn't talk much about fighting the F-18. No, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask yeah, you if, you, if yeah. you had any, you know, general general recollections or specific recollections about flying the Eagle, was it? Because you, you did talk yeah. in episode one, I think, about flying the F-16. Um, and yeah. I remember you talking a little bit about thrust to weight ratios and, and that kind of thing. But was there any partic- yeah. particular thing that you liked to do against the Eagle at the merge or after the merge? Um, or was it much the same as fighting an F-16 or? Yeah, because it, it had a, you know, it had a better thrust to weight ratio than we did. So we would we would call, you know, we would either do a rate fight, which means you're marching around the circle at a high energy state and you're just nibbling away at angles. And the F-15 and the F-16, we couldn't beat them in a rate fight. So we had to use our nose position and try and threaten them to the point that they went below their corner speed. So he talked about 385 knots. Ours was about 325. So when you're at a lower speed, your radius is is lower as long as you can keep the rate. And the rate allows you to move the nose around the circle. So we would have to threaten if we got into a, you know, into a close fight with another F-15 or 16, we would have to threaten them, force them into a lower energy state than their maximum L or L over D max uh, turn rate. And that was really the only way to beat them. If you, if you're doing 350 knots, they were, they were going to eventually march around the circle and and get you. Hmm. But um, fascinating story. When I was on the training squad and we did a four before with uh, F-15s up in, um alaska at elmendorf alaska 
And these guys were, you know, they were the dedicated air defense guys. They were going to, you know, defend Alaska from the Soviets coming from the, uh, you know, from the eastern part of Russia. Um, they had the conformal fuel tanks on them. I think they were C models at the time. And I think they might have had wing tanks as well. So they were very heavy. So they didn't, they didn't want to do visual maneuvering with us. And at the time, they had the uh, AIM-7 Mike, which is the same uh, missile that we had. So they didn't have the AMRAAM. So we were matched in terms of uh, missiles. We had the advantage in terms of maneuverability. But what they briefed, because they were running the show, so they said, okay, we're going to do a 4v4. It'll be BVR rules. So, you know, anything out there on the screen that's not one of your guys is hostile and you can shoot it. Um. So we came up with a tactic, which was fairly obvious. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't figure it out, actually, uh, because we had the same missiles. So we got up high and fast. Uh, we couldn't really sort their formation because the F-18 radar was not as good as the F-15. So we would just, you know, shoot one missile each at something out there. And we would call kill on, you know, if they timed out, we would call kill on that uh, plot. And they would have to remove one of their guys. And then we would go back and reset, and then we would do the same thing. And they had more tighter criteria for when they would shoot. So we were shooting, and then we would go what's called an F-pole maneuver. So you would take the radar to the very edge of the screen and illuminate the, the target for the missile flyout. But now you're way outside of their ways, so they can't shoot at us because we're not coming straight at them. Mm. So we would always time them before they did. And... Our kill ratio was incredible. I don't think they got one kill against the Hornets uh, after about three engagements. And we, really? we probably killed four F-15s. Really? So that was our morning uh, mission. And um, we came down, we had a quick debrief with them. And uh, you know, it was all very professional. They weren't hanging their heads or anything. But um, And then we went out and we flew another mission in the afternoon. And we virtually did the same thing in the afternoon too. And um, so we got back from the afternoon mission and we had a quick debrief with them. Uh, different different crew and we walked past and the morning mission guys are still debriefing morning trip <laughs> there was a lot of serious naval gazing going on they're going how the heck did this happen you know a bunch of canadians and their little hornets you know <laughs> yeah so the i can't remember the name of the wing commander he ended up uh, he might have ended up as the chief of staff of the air force and we're in the you know, the squadron bar later on having a couple of drinks and the and the wing commander comes up and he was a I think he was a brigadier general. So he introduces himself and uh he didn't say anything about the morning mission, but I knew that he knew. He goes, Oh yeah, how are you how are you guys doing? Like, oh great sir, yeah, thanks very much for having us up here. Appreciate the hospitality and all that. And he goes, Yeah, yeah. He says, Yeah, he says, I I got a lot of gun film of Hornets from my time when I was over in Germany. And we went Oh, really? <laughs> but he had to get that in. He had to get that dig in. Yeah. But the Hornet Squadrons of Germany, they were they were probably, they were supposed to be full multi-role, but they probably trained 80% of their time doing ground attacks. So they didn't do that much air combat. And they were not, you know, we, we knew that they were not as uh, as good as the Canada-based squadrons in terms of air combat. Yeah. Can you expand a little on, on the inability to sort the eagles for those shots then so so disco said um in one of the episodes that and i, I have to try and remember to get this right i think he said that you guys had about 25 percent less detection range than their apg 63 yeah. so are you yeah. talking about detection range we're talking about resolution cell the ability to break yeah, sure. out 
Yeah. So the F-15 is a, is a big radar cross-section. So we would pick them up at good range. I mean, it was way, way outside our missile um, uh, employment zone. So we could see them, but we just couldn't break them out and sort them. So, you know, you might be able to see two targets that are very, very close together on the on the radar scope. So you can tell that they're flying in line of breast. There's two of them there. But when you try and lock up the one that you, you know, you do a side-to-side sort. So the guy on the right would take the right target. And when you try and lock them up, a lot of times it, the, it would start to lock and then it would swing over to the other guy. Uh, right. So they, you know, it had some big limitations and, and both the tornado and the, um, and the Eagle were much better. So they had, they had a bigger radar antenna, which meant a smaller beam width and it was able to focus on the target much better than the Hornet did. And then the Hornet ended up getting, I think it's the APG 73, which is a uh, electronically scanned, much, uh, much better radar do, do you know because you, you said i think you got out in 2000 is that when you got out okay um yes do, do you know whether or not um you got the full-up version of that apg 73 um i don't know if that's well we certainly used to in the past yeah we we would not get the export versions we and you know a lot of countries didn't get the seven mic missile yeah uh, they didn't get the nctr so as far as i know and and speaking with the guys who came back from exchanges with the navy uh, we got the full-up versions of everything now canada has recently has had a very bad reputation for security leaks um and infringements and stuff so it's quite possible that we won't get the full-up version of the f-35 i really don't know mm. and they they probably won't tell us mm. you know there, there'll be secret code in the in the computers that we just won't know that we're missing yeah that's the great thing about the exchanges because you know you see you see what the what the americans are flying and, and the capabilities mm. did you have did you have nectar from the start in the hornet yeah did you did did, did the f3 have nectar and it was, it, it was a bit tricky. It didn't, it didn't work uh, anywhere near a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Um, so there were, there were parameters that you had to use to try and coax it into working. Yeah. So there's sort of a look angle, isn't there? You need to be able to look down the intakes. And if you're looking down into clutter, I think it, it takes longer to work, doesn't it? So. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of things in it and it worked on, the, on jet engine modulation. So it was the, it was the reflected energy from the, from the fan at the front that, that it used to discern it. But you would also get a lot of interference off that too. So it, it was really fighting itself to work. So I'd just like to finish off, um, you know, a lot of your guests talk about, and most of them are very experienced pilots, and they, they talk about what got them to that stage. And I think really the big thing for me was doing the fighter weapons instructor course on the F-5. And I was I was very inexperienced. I'd only been a fighter pilot for two years at that point, which is which is too early to do the FWIC because it really, we used to call it the PhD of, of fighter flying. So when you finish that, you have the global view of how to employ fighters in combat. And you should be a mass attack lead, a large force employment, and, and really know how to, how to employ the aircraft. I had I'd had none of that experience. Um, the F five was very straightforward because it had no systems in it. So we were, you know, a day VFR, visual bombing, all that kind of stuff. They made it difficult so that we would really get into the books. So we had to figure out 
um, launch envelopes to do toss bombing with the F5 without any electronics whatsoever. So we would we would run in on a map. We would have a, a release point, well, a pull up point. You would get to a pull up angle at a certain speed, at a certain altitude, and then you would press the pickle button, and we would launch these bombs off into the middle of, the, of this lake. And you know, it was it was surprising. Like you could get them within five or six hundred feet, which is pretty amazing considering there was no. Uh, assistance electronically whatsoever. So these are the kind of things we did to make it more difficult. But we also did a lot of um, large force employment exercises and that kind of stuff. And that was a, it was a huge, huge learning curve for somebody who didn't have any experience. And through dogged determination and a lot of good luck, I ended up being the top gun on the course. So I was the top graduate on the course. And now there was a lot expected of me when I, you know, when I got back to the squadron and then went on to the, uh, onto the F-18. Um, but that was the sort of moment when I realized that there was a lot more to this job than just being the best fighter pilot out there. And a lot of the top quick graduates were not the best pilots on the squadron. But the trick is to, first of all, the I in FWIC stands for instructor. So you have to be able to teach uh, the newer pilots, the craft of being a, a fighter pilot. But it's also um, knowing how to exploit the enemy's weaknesses and your strengths. So the whole, what I call the art of war. And that really came to a head when I dropped bombs. So not the first time in um, in combat over Bosnia, but in, in Kosovo where we're going in and dropping bombs. And that's where you have to be able to sit back and 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 not get laser focused on your task. You have to see what's going on around you and and think, this is how we need to survive here, or maybe we don't want to go to the target today. And there's a lot of pressure on you know, like when you when you get off uh, on your tasking and you're going off to the target and you say no, we're not going. They're going to be asking a lot of questions as to why did we go. Mm. So that's the that's the kind of bigger picture. Um, that that sort of led me to the point. And the other issue we talked about was, you know, things like the jammers and the half quick radios. And and guys would just accept that. You know, they just go, well, that's the, that's the hand that's been dealt to me. You have to have a lot of courage to go back up to the headquarters and say, this is unacceptable. You know, mm-hmm. we will not do this again. Mm-hmm. So things are changing, but it's uh, it's tough. And, it, and the F-35 is going to be delivered as a package. So, you know, there's no customizing what you're going to take or what you're going to leave out. It's it's going to come as a like a, a standard off-the-shelf fighter, mm. which is a good thing. <laughs> um, can't come soon enough, really, can it? No, no. And it, and we were actually fortunate because, well, and I'm hoping that we're fortunate because the the early models of the F-35 had some significant issues with them. Um, so they were, you know, they were able to fly them. But um, uh, from talking to Billy Flynn, who was, you know, deeply, deeply involved in the F-35 program. He said it's actually going to work out well for Canada because we're going to get the later model yeah. uh, blocks. Or- yeah, those early A, a models that the um, Air Force is flying were, you know, didn't do very much at all. I think they could shoot the gun and, and that was about it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. No, no real sort of war fighting capability for those early versions. So Yeah, one of the things was, I don't think this is classified. You know, they, at high speed when they got, you know, well over the mark, it would actually damage the uh, radar absorbent materials. So, um, and that stuff is very hard to fix. So then they get rele- relegated to the sort of B scale 
of the airplanes. They can't go out on the first day of the war. They have to wait until the, the SAM systems have been suppressed. You know, so so now they're into the fourth generation F-15, F-16 package. And they're no longer in the in the ultra-secret uh, stealth package. <laughs> well, Bones, I am out of time, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to say thank you so much um, for over the course of the last six or so hours, I think, of us chatting, for sharing your experiences. Yeah, um, genuinely, I, I knew almost nothing about Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, well, I don't know much about Royal Canadian Air Force, but I certainly didn't know much about Royal Canadian Air Force um, F-5 or F-18 operations, and you have... Uh, uh, I think very um, articulately and interestingly shone a light into that sort of dark spot of my uh, aviation knowledge. And I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people listening. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for taking the time to consider also some of the stories that you wanted to tell ahead of time and for, for making an effort the way you were dressed as well. That's been that's been <laughs> yeah. unique. None of my yeah. guests have done that. So I've appreciated that. Oh, so, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Looks are important. And I have to work very hard these days to improve my looks. <laughs> well, you, you, you have a very distinguished face, a very distinguished look about you. So it was a magnificent beard. And the, if, if you were to shave the beard off, you'd have an amazing moustache as well, which is something that I yeah, spectacularly well, I, I did for, Well, I, I, I've had a moustache since I was 18. So, yeah. Well, well look, I, th- there's, you know, we, we have omitted you know, the back end of your career, we've not talked about your time flying for top aces. So maybe there's an opportunity for us next year to get back together again, talk about what happened at the end of your career with the Royal Canadian Air Force, and then the time you spent flying the Alpha Jet with top aces um, in the, um, was it ad air role or or the contract aggressor type role that you were involved with? Yeah, we did both adversary and support. So we did close air support with the Army, close air support training, and then we did adversary for the Navy and the Air Force. Yeah. Well, it, it would be interesting if if you're agreeable to to get back and do a, effectively a part four at some point early next year. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's there's some good stories there too, and 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 the interim, you know, while I was at Air Canada waiting to go to top bases, so the sort of retransition back to the military environment. <laughs> well, let's, let's do that. But for the moment then, so Bones, thanks once again. And um, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sue. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe. And if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.